Welcome to episode 116 of the Video Game History Hour, presented by the Video Game History Foundation. Every episode, we bring in an expert guest, someone who's done their research or lived through it, and has an interesting story or topic from video game history to share. My name is Phil Salvador. I am the library director at the Video Game History Foundation, filling in this week for Frank Cifaldi, our usual host. Frank is out at an event this week, and if you want to know what he's up to, stay tuned for next episode. But joining us today is Misty DeMeo, author of CD-ROM Journal, a blog that explores multimedia games and software. Misty has been a longtime contributor to what I'll call the world of video game archaeology, let's say. And today she's helping us get to the bottom of a tricky question she raised in one of her recent articles. What was the first CD-ROM game? And more importantly, why do historical firsts like this actually matter? We're going to find out. Misty, welcome to the show. Hi there. Nice to be here. So before we get started on this this rabbit hole of research we're going to go down, uh, I just want to kind of define some of the terms we're talking about here. Uh, you do research on CD-ROM games and multimedia, and I think maybe for some listeners that might not be familiar with that era of games, uh, you know, that say when we say a CD-ROM game, it's not just a game on a CD. It was this particular era of game development, right? So, so what is a CD-ROM game? What's multimedia? Yeah, really great question. So uh, the example I always bring to mind for people is Myst, because I think even a lot of people who don't necessarily know about the the era of CD-ROM games can at least picture Myst in their minds, or maybe the seventh guest. Uh, and so you have this this image of a uh, an expansive adventure game that mixes together what were, for the time, really expansive CG artwork that required incredible amounts of storage, uh, audio, maybe live voice acting uh, or live video acting. And so that's sort of a part of the a broader set of uh, games and other media that were bringing together things that you could suddenly make now that you had hundreds of times the storage you had had just the year before. Because prior to this, it was either floppy disks or a game cartridge, but now you have hundreds of megabytes. So you can put video clips or CD audio or even just a large amount of text that you couldn't have before, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I've, I look at some of the examples here and you get some games that might have come on as many as 10 floppies. And it's, you know, wow, 10, 12 megabytes. And then suddenly CD-ROM lands and it's like, oh, you can have 650 megabytes. And that that opens a lot of things that, wouldn't it be impossible? So there's a lot of interesting experimental stuff that people suddenly started doing as soon as it became possible to even try it out. Right. It's like upgrading from like a twin bed to a king bed and just spreading out <laughs> you know, all, all this luxurious space for putting data on here. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting because you mentioned Mist and the Seventh Guest as two of these big examples. Uh, those were two big CD-ROM games that really got people widely adopting CD-ROMs and playing around with them and, you know, getting this hardware and more clones of these games coming out. But you also mentioned there's this kind of, not even a misconception, but just sort of a shorthand where people say like, oh, those were really the first big CD-ROM games. Um, but obviously there's more than that, right? Um, I know from my own research, there's there's games that came out before Myst and all that. But these, like, sorry, you were going to say something. Oh, no, yes, I was just agreeing with you that, yeah, it's, uh, 
Because these were, I think, some of the first ones to break into the mass consciousness. It's easy to sort of assume as a result, they're also the first and maybe not necessarily always true. Yeah, even the games that that came out afterwards were called missed clones. Like that was the the shorthand, right? In the same way that, you know, for Mm -hmm. many years, first person shooters were doom clones. Like it was just kind of riffing on what the most popular thing is. Um, So with this article, you wanted to go deeper. You wanted to figure out what was actually the first CD-ROM game. I guess the first question is, why did you want to figure this out? Why did you want to dive into this? So I've been writing uh, a lot about older multimedia stuff and sometimes just putting things into historical context is a big part of what I end up doing when I'm writing. And some of the things that I've been researching are things that fall into that weird nether realm before uh, pre-missed. So, uh, for example, one of the things that I end up touching on briefly there. Alice and Interactive Museum, which came out in 1991, uh, a couple of years pre-missed, is uh, one of the the bigger names of that period at the same time, I feel like isn't at this point well known as much, but it it came up when I was looking at one of my, uh, it's sort of background research in one of the other, uh, one of the first games I wrote about, uh, because the creator of that game was actually involved in the production of this other project. And it's, you know, finding out Oh, what what even was this world that all of these things came to exist into was a big part of everything. Yeah, I guess that was the other question I had was what you think the value in this is of going deep on this kind of thing and figuring out what is the deep background of this stuff besides just historical curiosity. Like, is there any kind of bigger like what this does in terms of how we understand history? Yeah, I think it's important to know like what was influencing people and what kinds of what kinds of things would people have experienced what along with what kinds of personal connections would have come up so for example when i was writing about artificial life uh al it is by this cg artist called desabra harada uh, an artist named Harihiko shono comes up as an important influence on the project and he's the founder of synergy which you could think of as japan's version of cyan uh and they made Alice in 1991. They made Gadget, which I think in the West is maybe their best known game. Uh, and mm-hmm. so being able to illuminate a little more some of these these personal connections and also these bits of influences is really interesting to me. Yeah, I do also want to add for listeners, uh, you got to check out Gadget. That's a remarkable game. Uh, where If you can find a copy and get it running in an emulator, worth checking out. Uh, okay, though, so... Let's run through this article, uh, because what you did was, um, what you found, I guess, was that there's, it's hard to say what was the first CD-ROM game. You broke it down into a bunch of categories. And so we're going to run through kind of these different definitions of the first CD-ROM game. It turns out it's actually kind of hard to define what exactly, I mean, not even just what's the first, but what counts as a CD-ROM game. Is it a game on a CD-ROM? Is it this very specific kind of feel? If we're talking feel, you know, it gets a little bit fuzzy. So yeah, going through a few options can be really helpful. (laughs) So the first, you identify the first CD-ROM game. There's actually two. What's the story here? Yeah, so there are... CD-ROM drives started to show up for computers around the mid-80s, but they were incredibly expensive and in the early stages were not really for home users. They were more aimed at institutions and professionals. So uh, we're kind of waiting for games until we get something that's affordable for 
consumers. And the kind of the weird thing is one of the first mass market devices for consumers, that's a CD-ROM drive for a computer, isn't actually a CD-ROM drive for a computer. It's a video game console. It's the CD drive for the PC Engine or the TurboGrafx-16 over here. Uh, so it launched with exactly two games in December 1988. Uh, so both of those came out on the same day. So we can kind of think of those as being, okay, these, I guess, are the first two CD-ROM games. You, you said, I guess. What's what's the caveat here? No real caveat. Uh, you can edit this out if you slice it out of the middle of my sentence. Uh, no, this is no caveat here. This is... As far as I've been able to tell, uh, the first. The first computer ones start to appear the next year in 1989. Uh, so, well, I guess I meant more that uh, there, there are two kind of unusual games to get the label of being the first CD-ROM game. Yes, yes, very true. They're, neither of them are quite what we're thinking of. So one of them is this game called Fighting Street, which you could probably do an entire podcast just on the title for this one game. <laughs> but uh, it's a home port of the arcade game Street Fighter, which for complicated reasons, they change its name to Fighting Street. Uh, and it's very much an arcade game with some CD music added onto it, which was a really common technique in the early era of CD-ROM gaming, where, like we said, we had all of this space and it was hard to figure out what to do with it. There was actually an interview recently of some people at Telenet Japan, and they were pretty direct about being like, yeah, so, you know, the question of like, we have all of this space and how the heck do we fill it was an actual real question for people <laughs> who are making the first of these because finding enough game data to fix six, fit 650 megabytes was actually pretty difficult. Is it even a good for, not that the original Street Fighter 1 is a great game, but is this even like a faithful port of the game? Like, how does it measure up in terms of like even being a good game on its own? it's well it's street fighter one i think there's a reason why most people think of the first street fighter as being street fighter two uh okay it, it's messy to play and it's weird the controls are strange but that's equally true of the arcade version okay okay uh but this other game now the other one is a much weirder uh of the two i think oh it's great i love it uh so this game is called noriko and it's a mixture of an adventure game and I guess also sort of a little multimedia collection themed around an idol singer named Noriko. Uh, you don't play as the singer herself. You play as this fan who wants to attend her concert. And then you have these sort of day in the life segments of going around and, you know, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm getting to hang out with the famous idol herself and uh, voice clips and some of her famous songs show up in it. Uh, it's really a very strange little thing. Uh, so it's, it is a, an adventure game in sort of the Japanese style adventure game. There's a few branching choices, but it's an overall fairly linear thing. They're more focused on the, the novelty of being able to actually bring in the voice clips and the music of this, this famous singer. Uh, but being a really early one, 1988, they don't actually have full motion video yet. So the concert scene, for instance, is this sort of uh, weird little collection of playing around with still photos that they've digitized down to around 16 colors uh, that they're moving around the screen rather than actual full motion concert footage. Huh. 
You mentioned the article too that besides the audio tracks, the game itself it was small, but it was still like bigger than what you could do on a cartridge, right? It was still kind of taking advantage of the space of the CD-ROM. Yeah, that's right. Uh, if you were creating a similar sized adventure game on a cartridge or on floppy disks, you're under a lot of pressure to conserve your space as much as possible. And I feel like both, you know, that limits what you can put it there, but it also puts some development pressure on your programmers. You have to come up with clever compression techniques. You have to spend time cramming it into the space over making the game. So if it turns out that even if your game is only a few megabytes, that's bigger than you could have fit on a cartridge at the time, and you you don't have to feel the, the ROM space pressure in the same way. Right. So that's technically the first two CD-ROM games. Uh, but again, you're looking for something, again, closer to Myst is kind of the direction we're going. So uh, the next definition you have is the first computer CD-ROM adventure game. What's this thing? That's right. So the first computer CD-ROM adventure game is uh, a conversion of a floppy disk game, which... There's a lot of that in the early days of CD-ROM gaming, because uh, if the market for CD-ROM games is still fairly small, not everyone is going to have the budget to create something purely for CD. They might convert it from something else. So in this case, uh, talking of Myst, Cyan, uh, who would go on to make Myst a few years later, took their floppy disk game, The Manhole, and converted it to CD. So we have uh, The Manhole is... It's a mist-like game in the sense that it's a first-person adventure game in a pretty wide open space. But rather than being focused on puzzles, it's more, they describe it as like a, an electronic toy more than as a game. So it's this, this interesting and neat space to click around and explore in with some really very beautiful artwork. Uh, so it was originally developed for the Mac and then ported to DOS on floppy disk. And then they made this CD version of it, which adds voice acting and CD-ROM music uh, to the to the base floppy game. So the content is the same, but they've experimented with these other things to try and give the player a, a richer experience than what they were able to pull off with on floppy disk. Right, but still a scenario where it's not a thing made for the format. It's still like a port, essentially. It's still an adapted version of the game, adding these new multimedia features. Yes, that's right. Uh, and so similarly, something... That I didn't bring up in the article, but did come up about the same time was Cosmogosmo, which was uh, another game in basically the same kind of format where you're it's a toy little world where you can click around and explore and see exciting things happen, which is honestly one of my favorite genres of this kind of game. I I love these. I can play as many of them as there are. Uh, and so Cosmogosmo was unlike uh, the manhole was sort of co-developed on CD-ROM and floppy. But in this case, because there was still a floppy version, it was, for the most part, fundamentally a game that could exist on floppy because it it did come out on floppy. Uh, so it, it limited a bit what they could do compared to something like Myst, where the idea of a floppy version of Myst is uh, kind of impossible. Uh, so mm -hmm. in Cosmic Cosmo, they leave out maybe one or two worlds on the floppy version, and they add some CD music on the CD version. But it's still very much, you know, this was developed with the limitations of a floppy disk in mind. Right. But even that, maybe not exactly what we're looking for in terms of the first CD-ROM game. So you have a couple more here that go a little bit off the beaten track, but in terms of just other milestones in these early CD-ROM titles, you talk about the first reference CD-ROM. What's the story here? How did this kind of fit into this picture of the first CD-ROM game? 
Yeah. So reference discs are one of the other things that popped up pretty much as soon as CD-ROM did, because this is too early for people to really have the internet, like the web didn't exist yet. uh, And the internet was incredibly limited. So the idea of, oh, what if I want access to a whole bunch of information all at once uh, and not get it in the form of an encyclopedia that takes up an entire wall? So the CD-ROM having this much storage on it suddenly made it possible to, oh, we can fit in huge amounts of information. We can be incredibly comprehensive on it. So the first uh, the first of these kinds of reference disks that were developed for for people at home is a Beethoven symphony disk by the Voyager Company. Uh, so the Voyager Company are... They're still around today. They produce a little DVD line. I don't know if you've heard of it, uh, the Criterion Collection. But (laughs) back in the 90s and the 80s, they were actually founded to make CD-ROM first and foremost. Uh, Kind of an interesting evolution, but honestly, I can sort of see some continuity there. So this Beethoven disc was meant to be sort of an interactive guide to one of Beethoven's symphonies. So it includes a full recording of the symphony in question. Uh, But it also has interactive guides to Beethoven's life and the background information on how this was composed, uh, along with a passage by passage guide to the piece itself. And that, I think, is is actually a really interesting approach. The idea you can go through each individual passage of this symphony and have some really comprehensive background information on these. this is one of those ideas that maybe sounds a little less exciting today, mostly because we have access to the internet where you can get a lot of the same information in really dynamic ways where the information could get updated in real time. But this was a completely brand new concept. Uh, so this was released in 1989 for the Mac. And not quite the same thing as a game, but in terms of things using the CD-ROM format, like notable software in terms of important firsts, it's still a milestone. Exactly. And it's using a lot of the same technology that a lot of later games would be built with. In fact, I mean, it was created using HyperCard, which was Apple's interactive technology. And the original version of Myst was also made in HyperCard. Uh, So you can really see a bit of a through line there between people using CD-enabled HyperCard in this kind of reference software, and then that later getting developed into more and more expansive games. So even if it's not like the, you know, this is the game that inspired Myst, uh, it is like, oh, here's this technology being used for the first time in an interactive context, and it's all fitting together in ways we'd see later apply to games. That's right. It's a it's a different branch on the family tree. Okay. Um, okay. The, the other thing as well that I'll bring up here is that uh, I'm planning to update my article, but a few people pointed out to me that there were some institutional reference CD-ROMs that came out a few years before this. Uh, Like I mentioned, CD drives are unbelievably expensive for a long time. And so when they first got launched in the mid to late 80s, it was pretty much companies, organizations, institutions that could afford them. So there were a few things like Microsoft Bookshelf and an early version of the Grolier uh, interactive encyclopedia that were designed for companies and institutions like larger libraries with the budget to own a CD-ROM drive for a computer in 1987, 1986, who could buy these things. So it's a little outside of the scope of what I was 
what I was defining here, but it's also, I think, a, an important reference point for like, oh yeah, these other things for home grew out of these other very expensive things. Yeah, I thought about that in terms of like things at universities. Uh, there was the one I was familiar with from working at a university before, which was Wilson Disk, which was like an early reference, not even a reference CD, just like a, a database catalog for researchers sort of uh, mm. and that also yeah, predates all this stuff and it's like well is that really fit into the story if we're really talking about what's going to be seen by the public and it gets it gets messy the more you try to like untangle and find these draw it back as far as you can uh but speaking of uses in education this was another one of the things you pointed out is uh in terms of these different firsts for cd-rom you also point out the first educational cd-rom game in terms of uh you know other formats that were very sort of stereotypical for the CD-ROM, right? Yeah, definitely. I feel like one of the classics is a, a lot of people uh, of our age, at least growing up, had our educational games of some kind, your your gizmos and gadgets or reader rabbits or adibu uh, or these kinds of things. So uh, there are so many of these things that are trying to be educational and entertaining at the same time. And the, the access to the amount of storage where it could pack in the information and the video and everything else about that, I think made CD-ROM really attractive for the people making these pretty much immediately. Uh, and so the first one that I've been able to find is uh, going back to the PC Engine CD again, uh, a thing called the Magical Dinosaur Tour. Uh, which is honestly, I think, kind of a charming name. Uh, it's really cute. Uh, so it's uh, developed by a studio called Fun Project, who did a lot of early multimedia work and especially worked a bunch with NEC on the PC Engine platform. Uh, and as far as I've been able to tell, it's the first edutainment disc that was developed first and only for CD-ROM. Uh, so it's, it's one of those things where you get a little bit of storytelling about dinosaurs, like dramatizations of the extinction event, or at least as we understood it in 1990, which maybe isn't entirely accurate information anymore, but uh, also a little uh, information about dinosaurs, pictures depict depicting all of these different kinds. You've got your catalogs telling you all about the different sorts of them and little dinosaur-themed toys for you to be playing around with. Now, I couldn't tell this from looking at screenshots and videos, but does this does Magical Dinosaur Tour use any of the features we associate with multimedia? Did it have like videos of dinosaurs or was it looking at the screenshots? It just seems like a turbo graphics game that was on CD-ROM, kind of like Fighting Street. It's definitely more like Fighting Street or Noriko in that way. Uh, the PC Engine had a fairly limited CPU. Uh, one developer managed to bring out actual full motion video from it, but the, it was really difficult to decode on the hardware that they had available. So uh, it's more of something using pixel artwork that's animated within the space of what they have, along with using the space on a CD for spoken narration and other features like that. I like this bizarre spectrum that's been created where a uh, magical dinosaur tour is closer to fighting street than it is to mist. Uh, <laughs> not, not quite sure how we, not sure how we ended up here, but uh, that's what happens if, as you try to tease this stuff out. Uh, but then we finally come to the game that you describe as the first CD-ROM native adventure game for a computer, which is Alice you mentioned earlier. Yes, that's right. So there were two that came out in 1991, both of them, uh, exclusive to the Mac at the time, uh, Alice and Spaceship Warlock. And as far as I can tell, Alice came out first. Uh, 
So Alice is the first game by Synergy, which, uh, like I mentioned before, you can kind of think of them as being Japan's version of Cyan. They were incredibly influential in the 90s. A lot of their stuff was considered very important locally. And a few years later, it started to get localized and come out elsewhere. But at this point, it was only released in Japan. Uh, So Alice is, it's a fascinating thing because the the format of the CD-ROM adventure game wasn't quite defined yet. It felt like they were sort of feeling through what they could do while they were making it. Uh, So it's somewhere between what we call a hidden object game today, uh, an interactive art gallery, and an adventure game. Uh, So it's filled with these uh, incredibly detailed painted rooms Uh, filled with these paintings all by a particular artist. And as you're going through, you're exploring and clicking at things to see what happens in traditional CD-ROM way. Uh, This idea of just, you know, exploring for the sake of exploring. But in the process, you get sucked into these different surreal spaces themed after these different paintings, while also uncovering different playing cards that are hidden in there, because it's a little bit of an Alice in Wonderland theme going on. Uh, And so the Unlike some of the earlier ones we saw, like the manhole in Cosmogosmo, there is actually a goal here. You're not quite just clicking for the for the love of the click, but you're also uncovering these cards to reach the end of the game and open more passageways for yourself. Uh, so this this sort of sense of you're finding weird things hidden in the environment and opening up passageways for yourself is actually pretty similar to the hidden object games that became really popular in casual games maybe 10, 15 years later, but it also has a lot of the puzzle feel of a mist type of game. And in terms of the the aesthetic and the artwork, it's it's making fuller use of the CD-ROM space than anything else I'd seen before. Like the data track alone is several hundred megabytes. There's no possible way that all of the incredibly detailed artwork they've placed in this could have ever fit without having an access access to a CD to put it on. And that's without any full motion video, just artwork. Gotcha. So this is, as you're figuring out the first CD-ROM game, you've narrowed it down to this specific question of like, what's the oldest thing that looks like an ancestor to the Mists and Seventh Guests of the World? And that's how we landed on Alice. Um, I think this is interesting because was this the question you were trying to answer from the start? Was it the kind of thing where you said, you know, I want to find out what the first CD-ROM game is. And as you did more and more research, you realized you needed to get narrower and narrower with it? Yeah, very much so. It's like I started out with sort of the idle question of like, well, what was the first CD-ROM game? And the more you look into it, the more you start questioning the nature of the question itself in the first place. And that opens up these other different questions I had to answer at the same time. So uh, it did finally bring me to what I could think of as being an answer to the question, but it, it took me down a lot of interesting rabbit holes uh, in the process. I think those rabbit holes are what's really interesting about this because uh, you brought up all these other historical firsts and kind of questioning, you know, this the narrative in history about like, what's the first type of game like this. So I guess what I really wanted to dig into for the rest of this episode is, do those other historical firsts actually mean anything? Because we talked about how Mist and Seventh Guest, those are these important CD-ROM games and they're influential. But if we're talking about the first CD-ROM game, you know, technically it's 
a bad port of the worst Street Fighter. Like, is that, like, that's the first thing he robbed me. So, like, so why does it matter that we know that? Like, why is this worth thinking about? Which is great because I feel like I have two answers that are completely opposed to each other. So I'm going to give you both per- of them. Perfect. Uh, let's, let's dig in. Go for it. So one is the answer I gave you earlier, which is that we have the question of what were people playing that were influencing each other? What works of art were people looking at? And what people developing their influence were were sort of feeding off each other? So when we look at something like Alice, it's impossible to think that they made Alice without having played the manhole. Uh, The DNA is just very clearly there. Whereas meanwhile, even though Mist plays a bunch of its, pays a bunch of its, uh, its influence to stuff like their own previous work, I have to imagine that uh, Mist was made in reference to Alice and to uh, Spaceship uh, Warlock and these kinds of things. So you have this back and forth relationship of influences where one thing happens because something else happened before it. Uh, so for the sake of of history and better understanding how people made the things that they made rather than just what were the things that they made. Having the answer to this question is, is interesting in that it helps us fill out this chain of influences. Meanwhile, the other answer I give you is that it's not necessarily that important at the end of the day, because (laughs) we do talk about mislikes. We don't talk about Noriko likes. And it's, it's not because Noriko is necessarily a bad game, but when we're talking about this influence or this artistic significance, I think we can say that something like Mist or Alice is a lot more artistically interesting than Noriko is. They stand up to a lot more artistic scrutiny from a an artistic perspective and uh, analysis from a historical perspective, even if they're not quote-unquote, the first. Yeah, you had a great quote in the article, I want to read about this, uh, where you said, I'll just read it out loud, uh, you said, first of lists are a fun piece of trivia, but there's a difference between trivia and genuine artistic relevance. The next time you read history in the form of a listicle of dates or items, ask yourself, what's it communicating, and what's the real significance behind this? And I think that that really hits on something that you see a lot in the world of video game history, which is that people love talking about historical firsts, right? Um, If -hmm. you ask someone like what the first video game is, there's hours of videos on YouTube about this. But, (laughs) But I think it's interesting because the more and more you try to answer that question, I think people start expanding or broadening the definition. So you end up with these things where people are talking about like, well, what's the first interactive piece of electronics? Whereas I think what people are really interested in is like, what's the first thing that resembles a video game as we know it today? And, you know, again, this is fun, like uh, on the Video Game History Foundation Discord, which you can, uh, is available as a perk for our Patreon if you want to sign up. Um, This kind of stuff comes up all the time where people will ask like, hey, what's the first Metroidvania? And it's like someone Mm -hmm. throwing a grenade into the Discord and then leaving and just people going on all day. <laughs> going further and further back, digging up these examples. But after a certain point, it's like, this is fun and it's kind of a parlor game. But like, I don't know of any 
thing of historical significance is coming from this. So I think that's mm-hmm. what's interesting about like you talked about, um, you know, how there were some of these earlier CD-ROM games that predate really anyone outside of like research institutions or corporations using them. I'm wondering if this came up for you too, as you're doing this research and kind of figuring out, well, what about this category? What about this category? If you were thinking about like, how do I get meaningful results from this? Like, is that something that was mm-hmm. passing through your mind on this one? In terms of how difficult it is to even track them down, you mean, or in terms well, of in terms of finding, like, uh, I guess, for lack of a better word, a satisfying answer to this question that's not just mm, some yeah. weird, obscure CD-ROM that was only used at like the FBI or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's definitely a a real factor there. And and when you're talking satisfying, there's a question of you know what is what's interesting enough to spend time answering the question with, which I think comes back to that, that question of, you know, is it a trivia point or is it something where it's something interesting that's holding up to, uh, holding up to being looked at in depth? Yeah, I guess for me, and just, just kind of expanding all this and just rambling about this, like the thing that occurred to me going through this was it maybe it raised some questions for me about like, do we need history to be useful? for us. Like I think about, um, again, the, the comparison of like missed likes, it's like, yeah, like we don't need to go back and call all adventure games, Noriko likes like that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like, like that, that's just kind of like borderline a historical nonsense. Like, even though it's the first thing, like if, if history for mm-hmm. us is just strict chronology, then yeah, maybe, but like at the same time, we don't call, you know, there were games like rogue before rogue came out but we still call it a roguelike so i almost wonder Mm -hmm. this is maybe a weird way to phrase it but like when we're doing this kind of historical analysis of what's you know what's first versus what's important like do you think it's okay to kind of strategically set the goalposts on this stuff so we don't end up with you know history in quotes just being a bunch of kind of noise data yeah definitely i mean if what it comes down to i think is what what exactly is the goal of answering the question? I think uh, you need to come up with the right question and you need to have a question that's going to produce something interesting and insightful when you find an answer on it. And sometimes defining the question of what's first loosely enough really just brings up trivia at the end of the day more than something that helps you develop a a better sense of history. Yeah. Um, to use a specific example that came to mind now, um, well, the Video Game History Foundation published an article a few years back about uh, the developer of the game Wabbit for the Atari 2600, which, as far as uh, the researchers who wrote that article, Kevin Bunch and Kate Willard, believe that that is the first game in which you play as a female character who is like a character with a name and mm-hmm. she appears on screen. Um and I think it's the kind of thing where like that kind of sounds like you're splitting hairs where it's like the first named woman in a game. But if you look at, you know, who, what's the first, you know, female character in a video game, you end up with like, I'm sure some very generic game where it's just a, a generic NPC. Character. Like it just, you know, indistinguishable, not really any, you know, meaningful. Hey, I'm playing as a woman. It is just, you know, a, a possibly even just like a box on screen or something. So that's a case where like, you know, like doing it by strict chronology doesn't bring you meaningful history. And like, sometimes you need to get that kind of subdivision to find what are the meaningful firsts. So to bring this back to the CD-ROM article, though, uh, this is kind of, I guess, a big question I had was, 
you make all these subcategories that are even go a little bit off the track of games where you have mm-hmm. like the first reference CD-ROM or the first the first educational game, like CD-ROM game. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. like when you break down those categories, like do you find there's historical relevance in meaning and knowing that, you know, the Magic Dinosaur Tour is the first CD-ROM uh, educational game? Like I'm, I'm wondering like where that goes between that being a trivia fact versus like being able to take something away from that. So I think that's the, that's kind of the interesting thing is that uh, I, in my conclusion, I kind of like teasingly question the value of the article as a whole as the process <laughs> of writing the article. So you could you could certainly argue that some of those things are in fact not necessarily super helpful. But the part that I think is interesting there actually is that some of these developers actually do end up fitting into the picture. Some of the the people or the companies involved. So we look at Voyager, for example, and. Uh, Soon after the Beethoven disc, they publish Amanda Stories, which is this collection of incredibly charming little adventure games. Uh, I'm a big fan of Inigo Gets Out, for example. Uh, Classic. And it's so good. And they become involved in this world of other CD-ROM stuff, games and otherwise, where the question of, you know, what were they doing at the start and where did that take them? It's actually really interesting. Uh, Not to mention, of course, their little DVD line that a, a few people might own a, a disc or two from. Uh, and the, as well with Magical Dinosaur Tour, the developer on that fun project ended up getting involved in other CD-ROM dev later. Uh, on Mac, Windows, they even did a Pippin disc. Uh, and they had got involved in some other interesting multimedia stuff later on, which also kind of fits into some of that. So you might say, well, maybe... Uh, Magical Dinosaur Tour itself isn't so interesting, but what if this tells us about the people who made uh, Buichi Terasawa's Under the Law, which might be the first digital manga, for example? That might be a little more interesting. Uh, in fact, I'm I'm working on an article by another about another game that this person or this company made, which stands up to a lot more artistic interest. And it turns out that oh, learning about what they they did earlier on CD-ROM actually gave me some useful information to work from. Yeah, I think we, in the history world, we always joke about our, like, Pepe Silvia conspiracy boards where, like, everything, <laughs> everything's connected. But, like, this article is, like, the process of forming one of those. Like, I think we all joke about mm-hmm. going down the rabbit hole, but this is an example where, like, every time you asked a question, you were like, well, that's not really what I was asking. And then you ask a more precise question, and it just raises six additional questions. You have to be like, we got to move on. We got to keep going. We got to get to the actual question of the article. And it just ends up with all these other avenues for discovery um i feel like people yeah exactly yeah i was gonna say i feel like people often ask like how do you get into game history research and i think this article is a good example of that of like you find something you can kind of pick at and then just kind of see where it goes and keep pulling on the string and seeing what gets torn up by it and you end up with like yeah that maybe there is a link however tenuous between fighting street and multimedia (laughs) beethoven and like figuring out like how all these things connect together that then results in you know wally coming out for the criterion collection like there there is part of this (laughs) greater chain of causality it's 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 complicated but it's it's interesting stuff um i guess a last question i had was as you're digging into all this i'm sure you were also coming up with other kind of alternate candidates like you mentioned spaceship warlock as another uh contender for a very early mist like game and that's a another fascinating one were there any was there anything you came across that didn't make the article that was like a really interesting almost first just out of curiosity yeah there were a few so spaceship warlock was one uh that's one that i think also comes up because when we're talking about first one of the big things that comes up with mist is 
it was the game that sold CD-ROM drives to a lot of people, which is completely 100% accurate. But when I was looking at Spaceship Warlock, I came across articles from 1992 saying the same thing, that a lot of Mac owners bought a CD-ROM drive for their Mac specifically so they could play Spaceship Warlock, uh, which is, I I kind of wished I could write about it because it was it's that interesting in that kind of first position in there. Uh, I'm, I'll probably eventually write a, an article just about Warlock, but uh, yeah, it, it almost had a slot in there. Another one is I actually drafted an entire section in this post on what at the time I thought was the first adventure game for the PC Engine CD, uh, Space Adventure Cobra, uh, which is a digital comic adventure based on a really famous manga of the same title, uh, I don't think it was out in English yet at the time, but it was already huge in France. Uh, and it was for the PC Engine CD in 1989. So it was the first, well, not actually the first as it turns out, but one of the really early CD-ROM adventure type things. And I, I had this section drafted on it before I realized that Noriko had beaten it out by close to a year. Uh, so I took Cobra out and put Noriko in as a result. Uh, I think Cobra is really interesting in that it's uh, a case of a really dense, choice-heavy Japanese-style adventure game on CD-ROM, which eventually got really associated with all the kinds of resources that you needed a full CD-ROM to make, but uh, a super early example of someone doing that. I love the example you brought up of Spaceship Warlock there, because I think that's a case where maybe you break it down even further, because I think you mentioned in the article that Alice didn't get an international release until 94, I think you said? Yes. Yeah, that's right. It it got a an updated re-release in English for Mac and Windows in 94. So if you're focused specifically on the Western world, then yeah, Alice doesn't make the cut and Spaceship Warlock gets a slot. Uh, that, that's what moved the hardware. I'm, yeah, there's several different yeah things happening at once. Exactly. Yeah. So there's, there's other ways you could slice this that would result in it shaking out differently. So you kind of have to... Uh, kind of have to think about it in different ways. Uh, there was another section I almost added before I decided it was a little too much of trivia, but uh, <laughs> I had a little section where I was looking at what the first CD-ROM game for a Japan-specific computer was like. But then I realized, well, okay, Japanese-only computers are interesting, but also do I then look at what's the, the first Amiga CD-ROM game? Do I look at... Uh, the BBC Micro and et cetera. And it's like, well, that, that starts to get really very specifically regional. Uh, and it it became much more trivia than anything that maybe was insightful in any particular direction. So I decided not to pursue writing that one. Or it's trivia for your own perspective. There might be somebody who's like, <laughs> a, maybe there's someone who like can find the link between like Dizzy the Egg and the BBC Micro CD-ROM, like figuring out like what uh, the European connection is there. So like, yeah, that's, if people uh-huh. want to, we've given people like a dozen prompts that they want to start researching stuff you want to get into game history. Exactly. Uh, and in fact, there was something someone brought up to me on uh, Mastodon about this when I posted about it, which was someone uh, brought up an incredibly weird thing from Europe that I absolutely adore, which is a compilation CD of games for European 8-bit micros, which is on CD, but not CD-ROM. Because back then, a lot of these computers, instead of a floppy disk drive, had a tape drive, and you'd load games off of tapes. And it, it was encoding data in audio on a tape. 
And someone realized, wait a minute, a CD also has audio, just like a tape. So what if we give you a little adapter, you plug into the tape drive, and then you play the game off of tracks on the CD and load it into your computer that way? So it's functionally just a collection of a dozen or so tape-based games that happen to come on an audio CD, which is brilliant. It's so weird. It would never have occurred to me someone would make it, but yes, they absolutely did. And that could bet is an early CD game, but perhaps not CD-ROM game. Like that that was not relevant to your question. So you pruned off all those branches, but that might be very relevant to somebody else studying that stuff. Yeah, this is someone else grafting their own branch onto that tree. I love it. Listeners, get, uh, get some duct tape and uh, go find this tree and start, <laughs> start assembling your own tree. Um, anyway, Misty, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, I want to make sure you have a chance to uh, plug your stuff. Uh, where can folks find you these days? Yeah, so uh, my CD-ROM journal is at cdrom.ca. Uh, I usually publish an article uh, at least once a month. Uh, I just recently published something uh, interesting about another reference CD, so go and take a look if you're interested. Uh, I'm also active on uh, on Mastodon, digiprez.club slash misty, and uh I occasionally tweet announcements about things I'm doing on the website. I'm continuing to insist on calling Twitter, uh, which is <laughs> at Misty DeMeo. Uh, aside from that, if you're interested in just seeing screenshots of weird old CD-ROM games, I have a blog I do just that on, uh, cohost.org slash interactive. Wonderful. Well, Misty, thanks so much for coming by. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Video Game History Hour brought to you by the Video Game History Foundation. If you have questions or comments for the show, you can find us on Twitter at Game History Hour or email us at podcast at gamehistory.org. Did you know that the Video Game History Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and that all of your contributions are tax deductible? You can support this podcast and all of our other work on Patreon or at gamehistory.org slash donate. This episode of the Video Game History Hour was produced by Robin Kunamune and edited by Michael Carroll. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.